Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center, where yesterday I gave a talk to the UCLA Buddhist Club on the spiritual journey. So what you're about to hear is that talk. What to look out for, what to do, and how to do it. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. So with no further introduction, my talk to the UCLA Buddhist Club on the spiritual journey. So we talked about a lot of stuff, and I thought for the new year, it might be nice to start off with um, the journey, the Buddhist journey. Now, is anybody a Buddhist here? Anybody interested? Wow, okay. Really? Okay. Cool. Okay, well, you you don't have to be a a Buddhist to appreciate this story, but this is a journey. This is a spiritual journey. And if anybody's on a spiritual journey, no matter what it is, some of the things I'm about to say may be useful and may sound familiar. Now, we all started our journey, Buddhist or otherwise, with a little bit of faith. And the faith was that maybe there is a path that leads to God, or leads to the end of suffering, or leads to being happy, or leads to better grades. Maybe there is a path. And so we take that first step, all based on faith. And many people have taken that first step ahead of us, and hopefully many people behind us will take that first step as well. And it's tenuous. We're not quite sure what to expect. We might have read some books, we might have talked to some people, we might have heard about meditation or done some meditation, but we're not quite... Sure, what it means to commit yourself to that first step on the path. And then, is there a sense that you can get off the path if you want to? Or once you start on the path, are you sort of stuck? So it's scary, because there's a lot of questions that really can't be answered until you've been on the path for a while. So you make that first step, and in Buddhism, what that first step allows you to do now is test the waters and see for yourself if what the Buddha said was true or not. Because as most of us know, he said in the Kalama Sutta, don't believe it just because I said it, don't believe it because it's tradition, don't believe it because it's in the books, believe it because it's true in your experience. Believe it because it's true in your practice. So we take the first step and the second step and the third step and the fourth step. And we might have read something, and so we're going to test it out. We're going to sit and meditate for a while. Because we read, if we meditate, we'll feel better. We'll be more peaceful. We'll be able to accept things more the way they are rather than the way we want them to be. So we start practicing our meditation. It might be five or ten minutes a day. And some days we might miss it because we're too tired or we need to do other things. And then we get back and feel guilty and we do it again. And then we start to see that there are really subtle changes because of our meditation practice. We might be a little bit happier, a little bit more peaceful. We might have a little more clarity. And then we say, but if I stop meditating, will that stop too? And so what might happen is we say, okay, I've been meditating now for a month. But now I'm going to stop meditating for a week just to see if there's any difference between meditation and not meditating. 
And so we stop for a week, and we notice there is a difference. Okay, so now we start meditating again. And, and so we see, okay, there is something in meditation. It does have an effect on me. It does make me different. And when I stopped, I saw that I, I sort of went back to how I used to be, and I didn't like that. I much preferred it when I meditated. Now, this is the first sign. This is the first sign that the path, the journey you're on is working. But it's also the first sign that maybe you can't go back. That maybe once you've started now and committed yourself to this path, that maybe there's no place to stop. You know, um, after I'd been practicing meditation for a couple years, I thought, well, maybe I, maybe this stuff's already in place and it won't go away if I stop meditating. Maybe I can just sort of like, I, you know, I practice, 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 and then it'll just be there, you know, and it will never go away because it's in place firmly. And so I stopped meditating for a couple months, and it went away. I said, gosh, in order for it to work for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to take a little time out each day and meditate for the rest of my life. Now, when I was thinking about for the rest of my life, it sounded like a really, really long time. It seems a little bit shorter now because I'm older. But at the time, it seemed like a really long time. But in reality, when we say, I'm going to have to meditate every day, it's just sort of like, okay, well, in the 12 or 15 hours I'm going to be awake today, can I put 15 minutes aside? So the rest of my life turned out to be just today. And then eventually the rest of my life turned out to be right now. Because it's always sort of right now. So I, so I said to myself, well, if I have to brush my teeth every day, if I have to take a shower every day or maybe every other day, if I have to get my hair cut every couple of weeks or every month or so, putting something in just in the day isn't such a big deal. And it's only 15 or 20 minutes, so it's not like six hours. So maybe I can fit it in every day because I see the benefit. In the same way I see the benefit when I brush my teeth, I see the benefit when I meditate every day. Does it change the way I perceive the world around me? After reading all the Dharma and after meditation, does it change the way I look at the world? And it does. It does. This path, any spiritual path, will change the way you look at the world. What happens, though, if we don't like what we see? Can we go back? Now, when I say that, you start to wake up a little bit. You've been meditating now. You're getting more sensitive to the issues in the world, issues in yourself, issues in your friends. You watch the news. You start to see that, you know, this is a really weird world we're living in. There seems to be some truth to global warming. Japan has had more snow than it's had in 50 years. You know, we're in December, pardon me, January right now, and it's like almost 80 degrees. I mean, it's odd, isn't it? And then the, all this political stuff starting to happen now in Washington. It's going to be a really cool year for politics. There's going to be so much stuff to listen to and read. And, and, and can we just go back to that original ignorance we had before we started to meditate? Can I put my head back in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist? Can I unlearn what I've already learned? Well, the answer I came up with was no. 
that once you start to wake up, you, you can't go back to sleep again. So if you can't stand still, if you can't just stop and say, I'm not going any further, we can't do that either with our spiritual path. And if we can't go back and unlearn the stuff we've learned, our only choice is to march ahead, to continue to practice, to continue to study, to continue to integrate the new information, see the world in a different way, and eventually come to a place of peace with it, that realize the world has always been this way. This isn't the first time. Before we came up here, I was talking about Rhino Records down on Western Boulevard, closed at the beginning of the year. I've been shopping there since the 1980s, but it's been open for like 35 years. And they just lost their business. Ambassador Hotel in my neighborhood, down the street on Wilshire Boulevard, built in 1921. And it's almost down to the ground now. They're going to make a high school out of it. Grand old hotel. So everything keeps changing. Can I go back and pretend that Rhino Records is open? Can I go back and get a room at the Ambassador Hotel now? It's, it's gone forever. Can never do it. But I did go on eBay and I found a postcard from the Ambassador Hotel, 1930, $1.75. I bid on it. I think I'm going to get it. What a great memento from a grand old hotel. A 1930s postcard. But isn't that just one of the ghosts of the hotel? Yeah. And when we look back on how we used to be, aren't those the ghosts of our life as well? When we didn't know, when we couldn't see, when we were innocent and didn't understand. And now we're maturing and growing in a spiritual way, and we're looking at the world in a different way. And some of the times we like what we see and sometimes we don't. But can we stop and not look at it that way anymore? Or do we need to continue? And the truth of the matter is, anybody who starts a spiritual path, if they're on it for even a short period of time, will most likely need to be on it for a really long time, maybe the rest of their life. So we've got to settle in. huh? We, we don't want to fight it. We, we, we set up our, our meditation practice and, and visit that every day. After a while, it becomes an old friend. You start to see the same mindsets arising and passing away. Yesterday you were angry. Today you're angry. Tomorrow you're angry. Okay. I've been angry for three days. What am I going to do? But you still sit down and you still meditate. You're reading the Dhammapada. You're on verse 23. Now you're on verse 24. Now you're on verse 25. Okay. That's nice. I'm learning some stuff. I'm seeing things. Sangha, other people who are practicing, other people who are meditating, come together, share, see the world in a similar way. All of us sitting here looking at the world. Cool. So it means I'm not the only one. It means this practice allows other people to see the world differently too. So it must work for them as well. Okay, great. And then it becomes just what we do. It's nothing special after a while. But we can never stop doing it, no matter where we are. On vacation, do people ever say to themselves, I'm going to go on vacation and I'm not going to meditate? A lot of people that, me that meditate, when they go on vacation, also meditate on vacation. You know? 
Because it's something you do. Do you stop brushing your teeth when you're on vacation? Probably not. Stop taking showers when you're on vacation? Only if you're alone. Do you know? So you sort of take that stuff with you wherever you go. Now, I went to Boston in December, and I was at a, a spirituality and medicine conference and uh, did some workshops and stuff. Did I take my practice with me? Yes, I did. I took it to Boston. It was really cold, too. Did other people practice? Yes, they did. The Catholics had a Eucharist. And all the Catholics that were at the conference went upstairs to this big room, and they did a Eucharist. They had a priest there. And the Catholics needed to do a Eucharist every week, it said. So there they were. And they invited me to join them. Well, I sat there. I, I didn't uh, you know, take the wine, because that would have been sort of weird for the Buddhist guy to do that. But I sat there and, and shared in their joy and in their happiness. But that was their practice. And, and there was a Jewish person there who said, well, why can't we have a rabbi? And we said, we can have our ceremony. So people wanted to continue their religious practice, even at this conference. They didn't want to postpone it because it's useful in their life in the same way our practice is useful in our life and makes us a different person and most likely a better person as well. So practice is good. But it wasn't until I was practicing for four or five years that one day I woke up to the realization that I would have to practice forever. That I couldn't stop. I couldn't ever stop. There needed to be some kind of practice every day in my life. Even if it was just reading a stanza of a sutta or doing a chant or meditating. I needed to have a little bit of practice every day in my life to continue the momentum of my spiritual awakening so I wouldn't go back to sleep again, so I could continue to open and open and open more and more and more and become aware of all the things that were wrong with the world and become aware of all the things that were right in the world. Because there's always that, too. So my practice allowed me to appreciate chocolate ice cream even more. I woke up to how wonderful it tastes. Huh? Do you like chocolate ice cream? Okay. Yeah. So it's good. So we need to practice. But we have to be mature about our practice and realize that if we want to start a practice, it might want to continue for quite a while. So we're not, we can't be afraid of this. We just have to go along for the ride. And pretty soon it builds up its own momentum, and you don't even have to think about it. It practice, it does itself. Most cool. Anybody have any uh, questions or comments on what I just said? Yeah. Uh, I just want to see that you're not aware. Yeah, good point. Did everybody hear that? Okay. <clears throat> well, it seems to sort of work this way, at least for me, that. Uh, I need to practice the rest of my life, but I don't really know what kind of practice I'll be doing. <laughs> that I, I might, for a few years, be into chanting really heavy and just really enjoy all the stuff that chanting does, and then I'll stop. Say, okay, I've chanted enough. So I'm just going to sit quietly now for 10 years and not say anything. And, and then I might have a little chanting and a little quiet sitting. Um, I might find somebody, if I wasn't a monk, who was practicing also, but had a different practice than I did. 
And I might want to share their practice with them and go to their temple and see what they do and find that works well too. Is it wrong to be attached to Buddhism? Uh, No, because eventually Buddhism will tell you that you have to let go. Buddhism will say to you that if you want to be free, if you want to be enlightened, you can't be a Buddhist any longer. Because by being a Buddhist, you prevent yourself from achieving enlightenment. Isn't that weird? But that's the attachment thing. That, you know, for instance, say, I want to be a truck driver. I want to be a truck driver. I want to be a truck driver. So I went to school to learn how to be a truck driver. And then I still wanted to be a truck driver, so I thought of myself as being a truck driver. But I really wasn't a truck driver until I stopped thinking I was a truck driver and just drove the truck. Now people look at me and they say, oh, you're a truck driver. And you go, no, I'm just driving the truck. Oh, but that's a truck driver. So it's sort of like I'm going to meditate so I can be a really good Buddhist so I can achieve enlightenment. And that's the goal we have. But eventually, we decide we don't even want to be a good Buddhist. We just want to practice. And our practice will make us a good Buddhist. And eventually, we decide, well, we don't even want enlightenment. Because our practice will allow us to see that we are already enlightened. That all the time we wanted this and wanted that, we were already that. But we needed to sort of want it in the beginning to even do it. It seems to be very, uh, it seems to be a Western approach. We ha- we're goal oriented. And I bet you when you signed up for UCLA, you all had a goal. Or your parents had a goal for you. You know, to get a diploma and get a job and pay off your student loans. Goal, goal, goal. But when you come here to UCLA, you probably just are at UCLA now. And you're just eating and sleeping and working and studying and playing. And, but that's, you're not really like, oh, I'm going to go to UCLA. That's my goal. Because now you're doing it. And what is it? Well, it turns out just to be what you do. It's your life. And people look at you as students at UCLA because that's your life now. So, yes, you, it, it can be a problem, but it seems in Buddhism that the, the more mature we in our practice, uh, the more we realize it's all about the journey. It's all about the path, and it has nothing to do with the goal. And, and the path, this path, this practice we do every day, allows us to slowly and gradually wake up to the fact that we are already perfect, and we are already enlightened. But we had a few things to get out of the way. Lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. And then once those were moved aside, then all that was left was this wonderful perfection. So Buddhism is a path of renunciation. A Buddhist never gains anything. We always get rid of stuff along the way. We just keep tossing it out. (laughs) And our load gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And eventually, we don't have anything And paradoxically, at that moment, everything becomes available to us. Now, who would have thought that would have been the case? That if you give everything up, you have access to all the things you've ever thought about and wanted. 
The only difference is you can't own them. You can only use them and visit them, and then you have to leave because they're not yours. So it's good. So does everybody sort of... Uh, now, now, do you know what constitutes your path? Do you know what the factors are, the conditions are to have a path? Let me just briefly talk about that because that's important. Okay, the first thing you need is you need access to the Dharma. Now, it's so easy in the year 2006 to have access to the Dharma. You can go to any major bookstore and find bookshelves filled with the Dharma in English. You don't even need to learn one of those funky languages like Sanskrit to be a Buddhist anymore. You can just go and read these books. So the Dharma is the first building block. The second building block are precepts and meditation. That's the practice. The practice of Buddhism is the practice of the precepts and the practice of the meditation. Now, can anybody tell me what the five precepts are that we practice? Okay, good. The practice not to kill. Number one is the practice not to kill. Exactly. Or another way to put it, which somebody told me sounded better, a practice avoiding killing. Right. I read what you wrote on Urban Dharma. Yeah. About killing, like killing, it has to happen, you have to eat. Yeah. And the specifics of all that. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So that we're in that position? So you can't avoid it, but intentionally trying to avoid killing. Yeah. Doing what you can to not kill when, if you're lazy, you could. Yeah. Exactly. Now, what what that is, like, that came, to, I was reading something by a Theravada Buddhist monk. And the Theravada Buddhist monks eat meat. Anybody here eat meat? Everybody. Okay, cool. Yeah. Me too. So it's okay. But he said, isn't it ironic that for a human being to stay alive, we have to eat things that were at one time alive? You know, until, I guess, chemically we can figure out how to just take pills. So even if you're a vegetarian, you're still eating life forms, you know, even though they're lower life forms. So what we want to do is we want to avoid killing and uh, avoid killing humans to begin with and then everything else, eventually mosquitoes. And, and, and maybe even becoming a vegetarian. But it, as a Buddhist, it's not necessary to be vegetarian. That will not make you enlightened any faster. But it will be a way to live in the world and kill less in the sense of lower life forms. Thank you for bringing that up. And the second precept. Anybody remember what that is? Not to take what is not given. Not to take what is not given. So we're not supposed to steal stuff, you know? And uh, sometimes it's pretty iffy. You know, if there's a pen that's been lying on a table for two days and you take it, is that really stealing? Because the person forgot it. They don't, they're never going to come back for it. You know, when do you, when's it okay to take something? Yes? You know, what I usually say to those situations is, what I usually say to those situations is, it saves the generator from having to clean up. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I like that. So the reason you take the pen is so the janitor won't have to clean it up. That's a great idea. Okay. That's good. No, I, I like that. But we have to do that with, with cups on the ground, too, I suppose, you know, and stuff like that. Third precept. Anybody know what the third precept is? Okay. Yes, to avoid sexual misconduct. So we've got to figure out what sexual misconduct is. And then we have to try to avoid it. So, um, and 
The fourth precept. Anybody know what that is? Not to lie. Not to lie. And this is difficult, isn't it, not to lie? Does anybody know what the problem with lying is? Do we have any ideas? What happens? Yeah. What's the truth? What's correct? Yeah. Well, the problem with lying, you, you, you hit it on the head, is it undermines the other person's reality. Because now they don't know what's true, do they? If you've been lying to them. And if they don't know what's true, they may make a bad decision based on the untruth or the, mis, you know, uh, the misinformation. So, so lying can cause people a lot of suffering. And, you know... Um, do you remember, anybody in school remember that story about George Washington cutting down the cherry tree? And, and he said, I cannot tell a lie. It was a lie. <laughs> he never cut down the cherry tree. And when I found that out, I was so disappointed. Because I thought that was, that was one of my favorite stories in school. And it was a lie. And, what, and what's the fifth precept? Anybody know what the fifth precept is? Not to consume intoxicants, you know, and it's difficult at, in, in college not to consume intoxicants because you guys work hard. You know, you need a break once in a while. You need to have some fun. Do anybody know what the problem is with consuming intoxicants? You lose your wisdom. You lose your wisdom, exactly. You lose your wisdom, you end up doing stupid things, and you suffer. That's the only problem, you know, because really beer is good for you. You know, in Germany they say beer is food, and they drink beer a lot. And in France they drink wine. It really does. It is good for you. But the problem is, it steals your wisdom, and makes you stupid. And even if you got a master's degree from UCLA, enough alcohol will make you stupid. Wow. So those are the five precepts. Okay. That, now, okay, that's, this is good, because when I started, when I took that precept, see, as a Buddhist, we have, we can decide how we want to take the precept, okay? So when I took that fifth precept, I said to me, to myself, I accept the training precept not to consume intoxicants to the point of intoxication. Okay, that's how I started. So I still had beers, because I really liked beers and burritos. That's such a good combination. But I wouldn't drink to get drunk. And and after just drinking, you know, and not getting intoxicated, then I decided, well, well it's probably okay not to drink at all. Because yeah. <laughs> what's the fun? <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, so I started, you know, I started with what I could handle. And that wasn't getting drunk. I, you know, but I still wanted to drink. Because you go to parties, you know, and if you're the only one not drinking... It's weird, you know? So, you know, sometimes I would just have a beer and I'd have the same beer the whole night, you know? <laughs> and it gets flat after a while. It tastes terrible. And just, you know. uh, but I, I had to feel comfortable with that. I had to figure out how I could accept the precept and not break it. Because why take it if you're going to break it right away? So it's the same thing could be said with all the other precepts. For instance, the precept not to kill. I, I, I won't kill human beings, but I will kill mosquitoes. They start there. Or, I won't kill human beings, but I will kill elephants. You could start there. Now, thankfully, in L.A., <laughs> it's hard to find an elephant, so we're pretty safe, you know. 
So you can start, you know, with what feels comfortable and then sort of work it up because it's a training. And if somebody's training to run the marathon, they don't start out with 26 miles. You know, they might start out with a mile or a couple laps around the track and then they build up to it. Same thing. And then the meditation practice is important every day. And we can talk about that as well. Maybe next week. So you need the Dharma and you need your practice. And then the third thing you need is a teacher. But you don't need a really qualified teacher in the beginning. You know, um, like, I practice playing guitar every day. And if anybody knows who Chet Atkins is, he's a really good guitar player. Well, what if Chet Atkins said, I'll be your teacher, Kusla. And I said, okay. And then he'd sit down and show me this really cool stuff. But I'm just beginning. I couldn't do any of it. I'm still trying to figure out what finger to put on what string. So if you have a really advanced teacher in the beginning, it may not be useful. Your teacher in the beginning could be someone who's also practicing, but has been practicing longer than you have. Your teacher could be someone who's gone on retreats, and you haven't, so they have more experience than you do. And really, the whole idea with the teacher is not to have him or her do your practice, but to have him or her explain what their practice is to you, so you can sort of judge and critique how you're doing. Now, there are teachers who will tell you how you're doing, and I've always felt a little uncomfortable with that, because I'm thinking, how do they know how I'm doing? That's just me, though. So when I would go up and ask a teacher something, I'd have a specific reason for asking the teacher, and I'd always weigh their answer with a grain of salt. I never took everything anybody has told me as 100% true, or useful. Because again, they don't know me, do they? In the same way, I don't even know myself sometimes. So we have these teachers that point us, encourage us, facilitate us, share with us, but they can never do our practice for us in Buddhism. So in the beginning, I had a sangha, just like this. And I would come together with the sangha, and we'd meditate together. And then afterwards, we'd talk about different experiences we've had and how we're doing and how life is going and what kind of work you're doing and that kind of stuff. And just by talking to other people who are practicing, you get an idea of what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Just by listening to people. And so, I, for me, there's always been two teachers in the world the people that showed me what to do, and the people that showed me what not to do. And it's much easier to find examples of what not to do. So you have many teachers who are willing to show what not to do. And then all of a sudden, every so often, you find one that shows you what to do. And you go, oh, that is so cool. Now I see the real deal. Now I understand completely. But we don't have to wait for that teacher to appear to us. We can use all the people in our life as our teachers. So you need the Dharma, you need a practice, and you need a teacher. That's how we progress along the path. Well, that's it. I hope you found it interesting, and I hope you found it useful. Uh, The next podcast will be coming soon. And until then, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, Be free from suffering.